Hello and welcome to Lim Baptist Church for our latest online talk as we explore the book of Hebrews. My name is Simon and I'm a member of Lim Baptist Church and it's my pleasure to bring our talk for today. For those watching live straight after the talk this evening, I'll be hosting a discussion time on Zoom, which will be a chance for us to reflect further together. Please look out for the link for this in the YouTube description area and join us if you can. Before we start, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that it speaks of your truth and reveals more of who you are and what you've done for us. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds today that we might hear from you and become more the people that you want us to be. Amen. One of our favourite day trips as a family is to Beeston Castle in Cheshire. We went there regularly when the children were younger as we pretended to be soldiers attacking the castle on the top of the hill. Beeston Castle is maintained and managed by English Heritage, a charity which aims to bring our nation's history to life, helping us to learn from our past and shaping our identity and our culture. Their website states that our vision is that people will experience the story of England where it really happened. Heritage is really important to us. It keeps us rooted in a larger story that helps us to define who we are and where we've come from. The letter of Hebrews is written at a time when the early Christians were forging their own identity in the light of a new chapter in God's story for humanity. This was especially challenging for those who had converted to Christianity from Judaism, and it is to these people that Hebrews was originally aimed. I wonder, do you ever think of the Jewish heritage of Christianity? Jesus was Jewish. His first followers lived in the Jewish homeland, and the early church was a product, amongst other influences, of late Second Temple Judaism. Because early Christianity developed within Judaism, most of the first converts were Jews. Indeed, one of the primary mechanisms for the spread of Christianity was public preaching, including that in synagogues to Jewish audiences. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. Alistair McGrath writes that Christianity began as a reform movement within the context of Judaism. From its outset, Christianity saw itself as continuous with Judaism. Christians were clear that the God that they followed and worshipped was the same God worshipped by the Israelite patriarchs Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. However, the coming of Jesus ushered in a new covenant, which involved not only a continuation of religious ideas and beliefs, but also a challenge to certain religious practices, such as circumcision, attitudes to certain foods, the observance of the Sabbath, religious festivals, and the rituals of sacrifice. The promises of a Messiah, a Saviour, were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He brings to completion all that Judaism and the Old Testament was pointing towards. We cannot underestimate the seismic shift that Jesus brought 
and the challenges and questions that were faced by Jewish Christians in the early church. Whilst being aware of their heritage, as God's story moves forwards, a new identity, a new way of life, and new approaches to religious expression had to be forged. So within this background, let us read Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 to chapter 5 verse 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. One of the major consequences of the new covenant was the role of the high priest and the offering of sacrifices at the temple for sins. Historian Martin Goodman writes that up until its destruction by the Roman Empire in 70 AD, for Jews the sacrificial rite on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem was to believed to be the main form of worship desired by God. The correct offering of sacrifices on behalf of Israel was a matter of supreme importance. These sacrifices, including sin offerings, hark back to Leviticus and the time when God gave to his people through servant Moses regulations for worship. Among these were directions for the priestly duties of Aaron and his sons and the giving of sacrifices to cover the sins of both the priest, their household and the wider community. Leviticus 16 describes in more detail the Day of Atonement, observed on the tenth day of the seventh month of every year. Leviticus 16 verse 30 says that on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all of your sins. And in verse 34, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. However, Goodman goes on to observe that early Christian worship differed markedly from Jewish practices and those of other paganistic practices in the surrounding society. 
And it's because of the lack of temples, the lack of altars, and the lack of sacrifices to express devotion to their divinity. So what changed? It's to this that the writer of the Hebrews turns. The coming of the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the offering of a sacrifice, his own life, given once for all. When I was 17, I applied for a summer job in my local Tesco. I didn't really fancy the cold of the freezer section or the handling of fruit and veg all day long. So I decided to apply for the health and beauty department. Needless to say, I had no relevant experience, no knowledge or expertise in the field beyond maybe being able to recognise Lynx deodorant scents at just one sniff. I was completely the wrong person for the job. I was completely unqualified and needless to say, I didn't get it. So instead, I became a labourer for a bricklayer in the east end of London instead. And now I'm incredibly skilled at mixing cement and at making tea. At the start of chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews details some of the qualifications needed for the job of high priest. The one who would offer sacrifices in the temple for the sins of the people. In verse 1, he was appointed from among men. And in verse 4, he was called by God. In verse 2, we see that he had to be sympathetic and understanding, dealing gently with those who are ignorant and might be led astray. And he had to be aware of his own needs and his own weaknesses, because he had to offer sacrifices not only for their sins, but for their own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. But Jesus is not just another high priest. At the end of chapter 4, he's described as the great high priest. What makes him so? What I'd like to explore three characteristics from the passage. The sonship of Jesus, the sinless nature of Jesus, and the suffering of Jesus. Firstly, sonship. From the very start of the letter, the writer of Hebrews is intent on emphasising the supremacy and the divinity of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 3, he writes that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In our passage today, the writer quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, which says that you are my son. Today I have become your father. The writer here is reinforcing the points by drawing again on the Old Testament heritage and highlighting the fulfilment of the messianic prophecies through Jesus Christ. The sonship of Christ is detailed throughout the Gospels. It is baptism in Matthew 3. A voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus asserts to his disciples in John 14 that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Indeed, in John 10, Jesus states that I and the Father are one. But why is the sonship of Christ so important? Well, there are lots of things that we could draw on here, but I would like to focus today on how the sending of his son displays God's amazing grace. Philip Yancey recounts in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? 
that in the movie The Last Emperor, the young child, the young child anointed as the last emperor of China, lives a magical life of luxury, with a thousand eunuch servants at his command. What happens when you do wrong, his brother asks. When I do wrong, someone else is punished, the boy emperor replies. To demonstrate, he breaks a jar and one of the servants is beaten. Jesus reversed that ancient pattern. When the servants erred, the king was punished. Grace is free only because the giver himself has borne the cost. As J.I. Packer describes, grace means God's love in action towards men and women who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Grace means God sending his only son to descend into hell on the cross so that we, guilty ones, might be reconciled to God and received into heaven. Grace, God's eternal plan to save. Jesus is qualified to be the great high priest because of his sonship. And this sonship reminds us that his coming, his death and his resurrection are all because of God's grace. In this, the Jewish Christians hold on to that most wonderful constants that flows out of their heritage, that God is love. His unfailing love endures forever. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us any more, and there's nothing that we can do to make God love us any less. But grace also reminds us that whilst the sending of his son was God's gracious initiative, God's gracious gift, it came at a cost. John Hall reminded us on Good Friday of Abraham, tasked with sacrificing his son Isaac, certain that God himself would provide the lamb. In the end, he had to give of himself. He had to send his own son. God paid the price for us. Have we lost sight of God's grace today? Have we lost sight of the depths of God's love for us? That he would send his son to save us? Have we lost sight of the cost? The cost that was paid by God himself? Secondly, Jesus is the great high priest because he was sinless. A perfect, spotless sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews emphasises this in 4.15, saying that he was without sin. The high priests who had come before him all had to make sacrifices, not only to atone for the sins of the community, but also for themselves. As a result, these sacrifices had to be made time after time after time. But Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Because of this, one sacrifice has been given once for all. A perfect spotless sacrifice. No more sacrifices are needed. As Christ cried from the cross, it is finished. And on the third day, God raised him victorious over sin and over death. 
the great work of paying for our sin and providing our righteousness and satisfying God's justice was finished in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So while we see the continuity of God as love, we see a break from the heritage of the past, from the old sacrificial system as a new chapter in God's story is written. This required for the Jewish Christians a complete break from the religious rituals of the past, a quite monumental shift. The altar replaced by a holy table, a place not of ongoing sacrificial offering, but of ongoing remembrance of the greatest sacrifice of all, the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us. It wasn't for his own sins that Jesus died. It was for their sins that he died. It wasn't for his own sins that Jesus died. It was for our sins that he died. It was our sin that held him there on the cross. It was your sin. It was mine. Has the saving work of the cross lost any of its meaning to you today? Does it lead you to a place of praise, to a place of rejoicing, to a place of thankfulness? And does it motivate you in living a life that pleases God? The third reason why Jesus is described as the great high priest is that he suffered. Hebrews 5 verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. He was fully divine, yet he was fully human. God incarnate, God with us. Now, it was not that Jesus was imperfect in any way, but that through suffering, he was perfectly qualified to take our place. He faced trials and testings and temptations throughout his life, yet he was fully obedient to the will of of the Father. We see the depths of his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Yet not I will, but, but what you will, he prayed. He was heard by his Father, but the plan didn't change. The cup of suffering was not taken away. As one commentator writes, the answer to Jesus' prayer was strength to endure the bitter ordeal facing him and then the triumph and glory of his resurrection. Every experience of testing prepared Jesus for this final act of obedience. Jesus fully obedient even to death on the cross. Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were experiencing extreme persecution. Physical assaults, attacks on their homes, imprisonment, public ridicule. The writer is imploring them to turn to Christ. Because of his experience of humanity and his perfection through suffering, they have a saviour who can have complete sympathy with them in their struggles. In the sympathy of Jesus, we too can find the deepest comfort and the most sustaining power. 
Raymond Brown writes, No believer can cope with adversity unless Christ fills his horizons, sharpens his priorities and dominates his experience. In our broken world and in the light of present circumstances, in the midst of struggles and trials and grief, we know that we have a saviour who stepped in to the brokenness, who suffered, who was tempted, who experienced the pressures and trials of this broken world, and yet he emerged victorious and is now sat at the right hand of the Father. I love the reality of the Bible. Throughout God's story, we see people grappling with the emotional depths of the human condition. The Bible reaches into every human experience and emotion. Love, faith, hope, joy, celebration, peace and gratitude. But also anger, anguish, fear, pain, loss, war, famine, poverty. The Bible teaches us that struggles are not unusual, but essential to our human existence and central to our life of faith. Leonard Mare writes, To my mind, true faith acknowledges that pain and suffering are present in the lives of believers. Furthermore, true faith wants to admit that all our experiences, negative as well as positive, have to be brought under the sovereignty of a loving God who cares and is interested in every aspect of our existence. A God who himself is familiar with pain and suffering through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were watching the new Trolls movie with the children a couple of nights ago. The Pop Trolls, who specialise in upbeat tunes and hugs and positive vibes and high fives, they encounter a country and western troll singing a slower, more melancholic song about life and death. One of the Pop Trolls explains, exclaims, This song is so sad. The other replies, Yes, it is sad, but, but life is sad sometimes. So I kind of like it. We live in a society whose values are those of positivity, health, wealth, well-being, happiness. And sometimes we can feel that if we don't attain to such things, we deem ourselves to be failures. Or if we don't project these things to others, it damages our self-esteem or our self-image. We need to regain what it means to be honest to be vulnerable, to express our deepest agonies before God and with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got to keep closely connected the reality of a troubled life and the reality of an available, responsive God. Through Christ, we have the right and the privilege to bring our pain and our heartache to God, where we can express our feelings and experiences of negativity as part of our worship and our relationship with him. Are you struggling today? Are you fearful, anxious, in uncertainty? Are you grieving the loss of loved ones? Are you in physical, mental or emotional pain? Jesus invites you to come, to come to a place where you will find mercy, find grace and find help in your time of need. I love the chorus of the song that says, in the eye of the storm, 
You remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. So let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. This is Jesus, the great high priest, bringing the Old Testament priesthood and sacrificial rites to an end, the Son of God, sent as a gift of grace from the Father, now reigning forever. Sinless, not offering sacrifices for himself, but offering himself as the ultimate sacrifice. Suffering in his humanity, bearing our sins and sympathising with our struggles. So what is the outcome of this? Well, in chapter 5, verse 9, the writer states that Jesus is perfectly qualified and is the source of eternal salvation for those who obey him. Jesus is the source, the way, the truth, the life. Through him, we find life both now and forever. The early Jewish Christians were surrounded by pagan beliefs and conflicting worldviews. The writer of the Hebrews emphasises the uniqueness, the necessity and the finality of Christ's saving work on the cross. He's not one of many sources, but he's the source. Christianity was so different from all the other religions and the faith of the time. There were no temples, no altars, no sacrifices, no high priests. Its core belief was messianism. As Jonathan outlined in our last talk on Hebrews, some of the Jewish Christians were prone to falling back into their old ways, into their heritage, their old Jewish practices, that these were ultimately fulfilled by Christ. They were even losing sight sometimes of Jesus as the Messiah, the promised saviour, the source of eternal salvation. And so, the writer pleads in chapter 415, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. When we are walking up to the top of Beeston Castle, surrounded by a heritage and trying to reach our final destination, my children constantly tried to pull me off course. They wanted to go and explore the woods and other exciting surroundings. They wanted to go and climb trees and look for rabbits. At the times we wanted to give up and go back down the hill because it was so tiring and so steep. Other times the children wanted to let go of my hand altogether and go off on their own way. And this can be true for us in the journey of life and faith. We can be pulled off course by other seemingly exciting things. We can get distracted by other pursuits and interests that can take up our time and our energy and our attention. We can be tempted to give up living for Jesus because it feels like we're surrounded by so many who don't believe or because the pressures of life get too much. We can sometimes let go of Jesus' hand to grab hold of other things that we might think give our lives meaning, purpose or direction. Let us not waver. Let us not fumble around in the darkness for other sources of pleasure. For none can compare, none can fully satisfy. Let's deepen our conviction that Jesus is the source. He is the way, the truth and the life. 
and let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for those who obey him. Not that we earn salvation through our obedience, for we are saved by faith through grace. But that as an outworking of our salvation that Christ has won for us, we will be obedient. As Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey me and your joy will overflow. Obedience, not as the enemy of life, but as a joyful way of life, flowing out of love and thankfulness, our very lives being brought as living sacrifices to God. So let's embrace and cherish the new life that God has won for us through the death and resurrection of his son. Let's hold firmly to the faith that we profess. To close then, as we think on the sonship of Christ, let us remember God's amazing grace. As we think on the sinlessness of Christ, let's remember that it was our sins that held him there. As we think on the suffering of Christ, let us remember to turn to our sympathetic saviour in the midst of our struggles. As we think on the source of eternal salvation, Jesus Christ, let us hold firmly to him alone and live a life of love, obedience and joy with him. It is in these things that as God's people we draw on our heritage and that we find our place in God's ongoing story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you that out of the depths of your love and your grace, you sent your Son to save us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, that you are obedient even to death on the cross, taken on yourself our sins so that we could be made right with the Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you were perfect in your suffering and that we can come to you with our own struggles. Lord, help us to never forget your grace. Help us never to take for granted the depths of your love for us. Help us to be honest with you and help us to have the strength to bring our struggles to you. Thank you that you promised to give us all of the mercy and all of the grace that we need in our times of struggle. Thank you, Father, for being so loving and so understanding and so compassionate and so sympathetic. Thank you, Father. Lord, send us your Holy Spirit again now. Help us to live a life of love and obedience and joy and freedom with you. For your glory. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For those watching live, we're going to go into our Zoom discussion time now. Otherwise, thank you again for watching.
and may God be with you all.